Hello, this is the State Senate DFL Podcast, Call of the Senate. I'm your host, Senator Jeff Hayden. Thank you for joining us. The purpose of the podcast is to allow you, the listener, to better understand our senators with stories about their background, where they grew up, the moment they knew they wanted to be a public servant. Also, we'll be discussing legislation or general changes in society that they hope to accomplish during their time in the Senate. Hi, welcome to a special edition of Call of the Senate. This is Senator Nick Friends from District 19, and I am very pleased to be joined by my colleague and the host of Call of the Senate, Senator Jeff Hayden. How are you doing today, Senator? Doing fantastic, Senator. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks very much for agreeing to this. I know our listeners are going to love to hear from you. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, this is an icon of the Senate, and we're going to dive right in if that's okay. Ready to go? That's great. First, I think if you could just tell people your district and what you represent geographically. Sure. I represent Senate District. 62, which we like to say is in the heart of South Minneapolis. It's the kind of neighborhoods of the Phillips neighborhood, historic Phillips neighborhood, Whittier, Powderhorn, Bryant, Field Regina, Kingfield, a piece of Tangletown. I've probably missed one or another central neighborhood, but it's right in the heart. If you think of Chicago Avenue and Lake Street, you'd be almost dead center in my district. That's the heartbeat of Minnesota right there. That's right. That's it right there. The old Sears building and Midtown Exchange, That's those are all in my district. Everybody stop by and patronize those businesses in yeah, that district. Know it. That's right. Tell us uh, a little bit about your background. Where'd you grow up? Uh, Tell us about your family. Yeah, absolutely. So my grandfather on my mother's side, my paternal grandfather, came here in the teens, 1918, 1919. He bought a house in 1928 in South Minneapolis, right along 35W, which is still in my district. Uh, There were 10 kids. Uh, My mother was one of 10 kids. Uh, His name, he was a minister. And many people say that I look like him and kind of act like him. His name was the Reverend Willard Merrill. And though he was the senior pastor at Bethesda Baptist Church, which is one of the old black, oldest black Baptist churches in Minneapolis or Minnesota, because of his kids, he had to work. Like the, he, he had to make extra money. So he was a railroad steward and then became a chef. And so he started out on the railroad because his father uh, was like a porter uh, on the Sioux line. They're originally from Iowa. My folks kind of really, as far as I go back, is from Missouri. That's where they were slaves. So they were Missouri slaves that got over the border to Iowa. And it's kind of the Taylor Merrill family. And he got on the railroad and used to take the trips through Minneapolis up to Winnipeg. And that's how they got there. My father, Peter Hayden, Dr. Peter Hayden, is a president and CEO of a company called Turning Point, which provides treatment, uh, culturally specific treatment for African Americans. He is in recovery for almost 50 years, but he understood that as he went through treatment in the early 70s, there was a need to add culture to that. So he's had his business there since 1976. So I came along and basically raised here until I got to high school, and then my mother and I moved, and we moved out to San Francisco. And so I went to the eighth grade, and then college, and was in the Air Force for those kind of 80s through kind of the 90s in the Bay Area, which has been a wonderful experience, and my mother still lives there now. Well, as you know, you and I share a little Bay Area background, right. we'll get to That's that right. in a minute, and you have a little bit of uh, cooking uh, in your family. We'll get, we'll get to that, too. Okay. okay. Tell us, how did you get interested in politics, and what led to you serving in the Senate? Yeah, so I moved back 
to Minneapolis. I was always here back and forth and said my family's here. My dad was still here. In 1995, that was the year in which the New York Times called Minneapolis Murderapolis. We had just a lot of murders within Minneapolis. It was a tough time across the country, and we fell prey to that cycle of violence as well. And unfortunately, that year, my very good friend got killed at a nightclub in kind of a domestic situation that got out of control in which he was accused of something that he didn't do. And, and the person he was with at the time kind of told her brothers and her family that he did something he didn't. And they didn't have the tools to kind of de-escalate and to talk it through. And he ended up getting killed. So I came for his funeral. It was my mother's best friend's son. And at the time, I was just transitioning out of a job in San Francisco and had some time on my hands. And so my father and I had an aunt who is, her name is Mary Merrill, and she is the superintendent emeritus of the Minneapolis Park Board. And she was the assistant superintendent. And between the two, they kind of convinced me to stay. And one of the things that I realized was the Minneapolis that I'd left in the late 70s was really different than the Minneapolis that I was looking at. So stayed, kind of got a job, started to establish myself, and I started to work part-time just as a second job at one of the parks my uh, aunt, you know, kind of kind of pushed me to. I wanted to do something more, and that was Potterhorn Park, which is also in my district, and we started working with at-risk kids. Through that process, I started to learn about the neighborhood organizations. Minneapolis has 81 neighborhoods and 66 organizations. They're very well-funded uh, and very well-organized, and and they act as kind of mini governmental agencies. They, they mirror the city council and interact with them a lot. So I got on that board. Somebody suggested that I did. By that time, I was working for Hennepin County, working with low-income people, financial assistance, housing supports, uh, et cetera. And I met a guy named Gary Schiff on the board, and I was the chair, and he was the secretary, and he decided to run for city council. So I didn't know much about how to run a campaign or or that side. I was a community person. I knew community. So I helped him on the campaign and he won. And so he was a and he he'll say this himself. He was a 27-year-old white gay male who is now in charge of being the alderman, right? The council member of this really multi-diverse, multi-dimensional area. And he asked would I come down and be his aide, which frightened me because I didn't know anything about being a city council aide. But I went down there, started to learn how government works, zoning and planning and all, picking up the phone and dealing with constituents. And so I really, 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 really liked the work. And a couple of years later, an opportunity came up for me to run for city council. By then, I had got married, my wife, Terry. Uh, I had a son, uh, Tomas and Sophia. They were little at the time, and we bought a house in the neighborhood adjacent to where we were living in Powderhorn. And that area came open to run, and I ran for city council. And it was a hard-fought battle, and I lost by 141 votes to the eventual council member, Elizabeth Glidden, who's a really good friend of mine as we speak. But she was there for 12 years. So I ran. It was hard. It was a lot of people who are walking around these halls today were involved with it. And I said, I never would get in politics again. I'm just going to help people. I was working for this really great nonprofit who was run by Jennifer Ho, who's our Minnesota Housing and Finance Agency Commissioner. Small world. Small, small world. So... I was working great, working on homeless all across the state, and then this seat came open, the House of Representatives seat came open the same year President Obama was running in 08. I decided I wasn't going to do it. I said, no, people asked me to do it. And then I got a call from somebody who's around here, who was then our congressman, Keith Ellison, now our attorney general, 
who said I should consider it, and he wasn't going to get off the phone until I at least considered it. So he convinced me to consider it, talked to a lot of people, ran that year, was a great year for Democrats, and I got elected in the House of Representatives, spent three years there, and then Senator Berglund, who had been the senator for 39 years, retired, and I ran in a special and that was eight now now eleven years ago, eight years in the Senate, three years in the House. Outstanding. I did not know the connection to yeah. the Attorney General. Absolutely. He deserves a lot of credit for he that. Does. Uh, among he does. other things. Absolutely. Uh, uh so biggest surprise, your first year in the Senate. The biggest surprise so I came into the Senate on the second half of us being in the minority. So the Senate hadn't been in the minority in like 40 years or something like that, or, you know, before they have party designations, liberals and conservatives. Between the House and the Senate to get here and to really understand how there were so many people who, and I'll be careful here because I, I don't want to be offensive, but how they thought about the world, how they thought we could have the best Minnesota that we could have was so much different than the way in which I thought about. There were just provision after provision and argument after argument of taking away people's rights and over-penalizing people and cutting budgets with massive budget cuts, billion-dollar budget cuts to people that were low-income and disabled. I really, really just didn't realize how different we were, and that really gave me the fire and the desire to fight to to get the majority. We will come back to some equality stuff in a minute, but thank you. That makes a a ton of sense. Let's pivot a little bit and talk about some of the work that you've done here at the Senate. Mm -hmm. Of all the areas, uh, and you've been a lead for us in health and human Mm -hmm. services, some of the gun reform debate, what What's been the most meaningful for you? You know, I would probably say there's a couple of things. I was really proud of our work, our courageous work, in making sure that everybody could get married in this society. You know, with the great work of Senator Dibble and Representative Clark, and Representative Clark and Senator Dibble is in the, the district adjacent to me, and Representative Clark was one of my reps the whole time I was here up until this year. And to really think about that, you know, my wife is white and Latina. Right, We're in a biracial relationship. And I equated it and thought about that it wasn't only 30 or 40 years before where that was outlawed. That, you know, the Loving case in Virginia in which these, you know, a white man and a black woman got married in D.C. And when they moved to Virginia, they got arrested for it. Right. And so how far we had gotten to really give that level of equality to everybody and to be able to participate in that in the context of bringing people together. You know, the second thing that I probably am really, really proud of is, I mean, there's a lot that I could say. There's minimum wage. Um, I was the final chief author on minimum wage and along with Senator Eaton, who kind of started the bill, helped to usher that in for people to kind of establish, you know, this minimum wage in which people can move forward. And then the other thing that I could just think right off the top of my head is this work that Senator Champion and I have been doing around equity and equity specifically in the economic growth department. The idea that we're going to start to not just kind of take care of people that we do in health and human service, sustain people at their lowest level that we often do, but we're going to try to put a sustained, targeted investment in people's lives so that they can get the skills that they can take care of themselves. I was pretty proud of that. We're still working on that. We have a long ways to go, but the disparities in this state is persistent. We are a very good state. And the only reason why I don't say we're a great state is because we lag as it relates to people of color. And so my ability to try to usher that through, and mind you, I will say that we had a governor who was fantastic on it with a little bit of prodding, Senator Bach, and we were in the leadership, I think equated work to the work that they do on the range. But then we had to tackle Kirk Dowd. 
we had to tackle a Republican Speaker of the House who, by all accounts, this wasn't something that he was interested in. So our ability to work, Senator Champion and I work all the angles with community and convince Speaker Doubt that this was the right thing to do. That's probably a pretty big accomplishment in hindsight. You have a lot to be proud of, and thanks for sharing a little bit of that with us. So let's look forward then. If we made progress, what would be the thing you'd like to see us make progress on the most as we go forward, whether it's this session or in the next two years or four years? Or what are you looking forward to? What's most important to Minnesota? First of all, moving the dials on disparities, I think, is not only important to me and is not only important to those people that are that are lagging. It should be important it is important to you, and it should be important to our state and country's prosperity. The demographer said we are getting grayer and browner, and that's still true today. We need to make sure that people of color are involved, not just for the right thing to do, the humanitarian thing to do, the thing that makes us feel proud and good when we go to bed, because if we want the prosperity that we've had in this state, they have to be trained. They have to be trained in the jobs that are going to sustain themselves, in the tech world, in the healthcare world. Frankly, we need more professionals like yourself, lawyers and doctors, right? And I think we're leaving a lot of that on the table because we haven't figured out how to engage them and how to figure that out. With that being said, the track that I've been on this year, and you've been you know, kind of a witness to this, is governance. It's having people at the table who look like me, right, helping to shape those discussions, helping to pass those laws, having that influence. If we're able to do that in our university systems, in our government systems, in our towns, in our cities, I think you'll see that turn pretty quickly. We saw Governor Dayton make a monumental shift in thinking about that. And not that he wasn't thinking about it before, but when he started adding key people, commissioners, and key policy aides and senior policy aides and even constituent kind of folks that are interacting, he started to see the world through a lens that he hadn't seen it through before. And we started to see his policies change. We started to see that shift. That really has made me think about what do we need to do? Because right now we feel like we're in a cycle. It's kind of a chicken and an egg. And I think the way out of it is to get more people at the table who are helping to make decisions that come from a wide and diverse perspective. Speak it from the heart. Uh, well, that's leadership, uh, folks. So get ready for the big question. The big question. Uh, you're a successful leader. You're the assistant minority leader of our yes. caucus. What's the keys to being a good leader in your mind for yourself and for anybody serving in public service? Listening. I didn't realize this one until I got into this position that you can say a great speech and often you're tapped to do so. You can meet, you know, with all these great people and get up and say, you know, kind of kind of walk around and say, I'm the leader. But what you really have to do is listen and listen to your caucus and try to see their version of the world, right? If I'm talking to an Iron Ranger or I'm talking to a farmer or I'm talking to people in the inner city, I got to try to understand their perspective might not always agree, caucus may not always agree, but <laughs> but to certainly understand where they're coming from, recognizing that they're here for a reason to get work done, and then how can we kind of bring folks together? I have found that trying to push people and tell them what to do or not, it really doesn't work around here. And even if you get them to do it, they do it reluctantly and begrudgingly. So the ability to hear people out, to try to keep the whole together, and then to try to come down through a process. And also, remember, remember what people have done. Now, people are making sacrifices each and every day. Often their constituents aren't really happy 
with a certain thing that they've done, right? And they've done it because of the team. And to try to remember that in a way that when you can get the opportunity to help them, you do. That's that's kind of what what I think leadership has done. Senator Bach, I think, you know, has really helped me to understand that, to really try to stay on an even keel, really to recognize that, like, even if we don't get it done this year, maybe we can get it done next year. Senator, former Senator Metzen, God bless his soul, used to always say sometimes you got to get half a loaf, right? And if you work hard, you can get the other half the next year. Good advice, people listening. So uh, you're a good listener. What do you hear on guns? What do you hear on health care? And what do you want to see the state of Minnesota do? Yeah, well, what I'm hearing on guns in particular is that people really want sensible gun safety law. They want to make sure that people who shouldn't have guns don't get them. I hear most people say, and even really hardcore people who are thinking about gun safety, they're really not too consumed with, you know, they probably wouldn't like so many guns around there and so many and certain types of guns. But I think we've really come to the realization that we want to make sure that people who shouldn't have guns, if you have a criminal background that shows that you aren't responsible, if you have, you know, a mental health issue that maybe, you know, that your judgment is impaired and you're still getting treatment, if there's things that we are really worried about, if you've been in domestic abuse situations, right, the statistics say that if there's a gun around, there are a lot of people are liable to use it. And so those kind of things make sense. So if we can figure that out, you know, um, most people know, but I'll just say it out loud, my sister, Taylor Hayden, was also on a stray bullet in Atlanta about three years ago. And though we haven't caught the perpetrators, we know that there was a crime being committed in a parking lot that she had nothing to do with, and they were resolving their disputes with guns, and she got hit by a stray bullet. I would probably say that if we could figure out who that was, and we've figured out some of the folks, they just aren't kind of telling the whole story yet, that a lot of those folks had a prior history that would have prohibited them from having a gun. Now, did that stop them from getting one? I don't know. But at least we could have some comfort in knowing that they couldn't go out there and buy one. And if they had to commit another crime to do it, then so be it. So what I also really want to do with her and her legacy is to get people to start thinking about how do they deal with those disputes? Why are they doing that? Is there other ways that they can do it? Because the day that they fire off the gun and you don't know where the bullet has gone, it ruins their lives and clearly the victim, which sometimes is unintended, like my sister. So with that, I think that uh, get some pieces. I, I would hope this legislature wakes up. Every piece of polling data that we get says that Minnesota overwhelmingly wants us to do something to make us safer, and I think that's the way. On health care, I think it's an evolving conversation. What I do know is we shouldn't go backwards. We know this. If they're sick, if they have a health care issue, what we call a pre-existing condition, it's pretty intuitive to say, if I got a problem, I want to make sure I have health care. A country that said that if you got a problem, they kind of looked at you like a car. They said, well, you're too risky for us to insure you, or we're going to charge you all this money in which to do so. Well, I think health care is a right. And I think we have a really just and moral society, moral society, we have a moral obligation to provide health care. So I think that that's an issue. And here's the other thing. We're really pushing for our young people, some of them in this room today, to like take risk, be entrepreneurs, you know, innovate, do all the things that you can. That often doesn't come with just going to some job and getting health care provided for you. So the ability to keep 
our children, our young people on our insurance until they're 26 years old, that's really popular and important too. So I think with that being said, if we can figure out how to deliver healthcare cheaper, more affordable, if we can get the transparency that we're seeing in this pharmacy stuff and hospitals and PBMs and this whole industry behind it and shine a bright light on that, we're spending enough money to get better health outcomes. We just have to have the courage to be able to do it. Uh, folks, we'll have uh, Senator Hayden podcast two to get a yeah. little more on health care, but we have to get permission from Senate leadership. That's we right. can't just fire away That's with right. that. That's right. Let's take a moment to let people get to know you a little bit better. Okay. First question is, what is the sous vide method of cooking? <laughs> that is hilarious. So the sous vide method of cooking is when you heat up water to a certain precise temperature. And there's a machine that, that goes in. It, it circulates the water, keeps it at a precise temperature. You then take whatever you're cooking, put it in a plastic or a Ziploc bag or another kind of shrink wrap bag. You put it in the water and it can stay for forever. And it makes the most tender steaks you ever want to know or pieces of meat. And you take that out. It's right at the temperature you want. So if you want yours at medium rare or rare or well done or whatever, it'll cook it to that, finish it off on a grill or a cast iron pan. You've never had a steak like that. High praise. The sous vide method. We'll come back to that one too. (laughs) What's one thing that listeners today would not know about you? I'm an avid biker that I don't think that people who don't know me would know, but if you follow me, you know that I really do like to bike. I have this big bike with big tires, and I ride around pretty much all summer long. I love to garden. I love to kind of get my hands dirty. My wife and I have a pretty good yard. And what's really new for me is my affection for dogs. I grew up in an apartment with my mother, and I never had any animals. And my wife bought this golden doodle about eight or nine months ago. His name is Dash, and he's really grown on me. So now I've become an avid dog lover, which my mother, when she hears this, doesn't even know because I never liked dogs up until about a year ago. Wow. Well, that's three things we didn't know. (laughs) Senator, I want to thank you very much. Last question. Yes, sir. If there was one thing you could get accomplished this session, what would it be? Uh, The repeal of the provider tax. And why would that be? Uh, Over a million Minnesotans that depend on that for us to provide quality, low-cost health care. That's the mechanism. It's already being done. And this issue of repealing it, I think, is inhumane, immoral, and is going to set our state back. Well, a little modesty here by Senator Hayden, because he is, of course, the chief author of Senate File 399, which would prevent the repeal of the provider tax. So thank you for that legislation. Well, I appreciate it. Jeff, I cannot tell you how much I appreciate the chance. Would you let our listeners know the best way to contact you? Absolutely. So I got Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. I think it's Jeffrey Hayden on most of them, Jeff Hayden. You could call my office in Deria. My fantastic legislative assistant will will uh, will answer the phone, 651-296-4261. Go to the Senate website, and you can uh, figure it out. Even I have a Snapchat that I don't use that much, but my kids say that I should use it a little bit more. Well, I want to thank you again. This has been the call of the Senate. Just like when the Thriller video first came out and everyone remembered when they first saw it, you will be telling your kids and your grandkids, I remember when I heard the Jeff Hayden podcast. (laughs) And with that, uh, this is Senate DFL Call the Senate. Again, thank you, Senator Hayden, and hope everybody has a great day. Thank you, Senator. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Call of the Senate. I'm Senator Jeff Hayden, and I hope you enjoy getting to know my colleagues and hearing about important things that are happening at the Capitol. If you'd like to hear more stories, please visit our website, senatedfl.mn, or connect with us on social media with the handle 
at Senate DFL. Thank you.